Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to better understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. Yeah, and you can find or follow us on social media. We have an Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, which are at From Skirts to Scrubs, and a Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. You can also check out our website for more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, and more at FromSkirtsToScrubs.com. Yep, and you can also subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review. Apple Podcasts and Spotify are both great places to do that. Yeah, and welcome to episode 52. So jump in, you know, keep going ahead of those full-length episodes. And this week, we're going to be talking about cervical cancer and HPV and all the things that come along with that topic. Um, I spent a month on Gyne-Onc, which is gynecologic cancers, and there's a lot of cervical cancer. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk about because if you're a woman, then you probably come in contact with this subject at one point in your life. Um, and we'll get into that and why in a bit. So I think before we get started, Alicia, any thoughts on cervical cancer? I mean, I know like a reasonable amount about cervical cancer just because mm-hmm. it is like often caused by human papillomavirus or HPV. And I feel like we study a lot in medical school. We study it um, mm-hmm. pretty extensively, especially because there's like a lot of infectious disease components to it. But then there's a lot of screening and like public health efforts involved with preventing cervical cancer. There's HPV vaccine now that people, Mm -hmm. that young teenagers can and should get to prevent cervical cancer. And so the rates have gone down a lot, but it still does exist. And so we have like pap smears and ways. I feel like cervical cancer is just a good example of a public health initiative that existed from multiple facets. Like there was the Mm -hmm. vaccine efforts, there was the screening efforts, there's the education component, and they all just came together in this actually really well-functioning way that mm-hmm. I think has really benefited patients. Yeah. Well, that was a great intro to the episode. So let's jump into it and talk about all that stuff. So cervical cancer is the third most common cancer in women across the world. It is most prevalent in ages 35 to 45. And with it being like the third most common cancer in women across the world, like that's reason enough to make it an episode. But the reason I really want to talk about it is because it's like so preventable, as Alicia mentioned. We have great screening and detection guidelines in place to catch this cancer very early on and prevent it, which makes it a very interesting topic that we're going to explore today. But before we get into that, what exactly like is cervical cancer? Like what is the cervix is what I will explain to you. So cancer of the cervix. And if you're not super up to date with like your female anatomy, maybe you don't, you hear cervix thrown around, but you don't really know what it is. So when you think of female anatomy, you have the uterus where babies grow and it's where menstrual cycles come from in a way. And then there's the vaginal canal where the babies come through and it's like you're opening down in your vagina area. And between the vagina and the uterus is your cervix. The cervix kind of like closes off the uterus and the outside world. And when you look at your cervix, which is what doctors are doing when they do a speculum exam, um, it actually looks like a small little pink donut. Like it's cute and it's like circular with a little circle or a hole in the middle. And this is your cervix and that is where cervical cancer is. And before we get into the history, I just want to talk briefly about like 
what causes cervical cancer, as we already kind of mentioned, which is HPV. So human papillomavirus is HPV. And yes, this cancer is literally caused by a virus. And HPV isn't like a common cold type of virus. Like it's not something you catch like from someone's cough or something. It's actually a sexually transmitted virus. And it is extremely common. Like when I say extremely common, like if you have sex one time, your chance of getting HPV is extremely high. So 90% of sexually active men have had HPV at some point in their life. And 80% of sexually active women have had HPV sometime within their life. And there Dang, are, that's a lot of people. <laughs> it's literally everyone has had HPV. There's like a funny bit on, um, oh, what's her name? Ali Wong. He has a whole bit about how like everyone just needs to like admit it. We all have HPV. And it's true. <laughs> everyone does have HPV, which sounds scary because I just told you HPV causes cervical cancer. But there are like thousands of types of HPV strains. Some common ones are the ones that causes warts. So if you get like the sexually transmitted disease that causes warts, it's a type of HPV. And also strains that cause cancer. But like I said, there's so many strains. So when we're looking at like what type of HPV you have, the ones that cause cancer are the ones that like are most important to this story. So just know that you have HPV. It doesn't mean you will automatically get cancer, but that's like a, one of the ways it works. Also, something that's really interesting is that our immune system is very strong. It can actually fight off HPV. So if you get infected with HPV, most people's immune systems will kill it off within one to two years of them being infected. So a lot of people will get it, kill it off, and then sometimes get reinfected. Um, so that's kind of how that cycle works. And then cervical cancer occurs if you have HPV infection for about 10 to 15 years. So having it for that long and like the inflammation the virus causes in your cervix is what they think leads to the cancer. It's also important that HPV does not have any symptoms unless you have the one that causes warts which is why prevention and screening is so, so important. So the connection between cervical cancer and HPV is like also important to understanding cervical cancer's history. Why do you think that is, Alicia? Oh, because I don't know, maybe because if we didn't yeah. know that the, vac the virus existed, then we never would have known that cervical cancer was a thing that we needed to treat potentially or the opposite where we knew that people were having cancer. So then we looked into what was causing it. And then we made a vaccine. True. My thought process is more that so a lot of cancers of modern age, like lung cancer or I don't know, lung cancer is a great example, though, is like really a modern cancer because it's affected and caused by our diet, our lifestyles, things like that. Also, like longevity in life, how long humans live like now compared to in the past has led to a lot of cancers. But. This cancer is caused by a virus. It's not caused by your diet or smoking or living to 80 years old now. It's a virus that causes cervical cancer. And for that reason, HPV and cervical cancer could possibly have been around for thousands of years. Like That way is such a good point that I was cancers. super not thinking about. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's okay. I didn't think of it either until I researched it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. Interesting. So, according to research, HPV is extremely slow at mutating. So it's possible that it is that it has existed for millions of years. And based on like different accounts, either from medical personnel or symptoms that were recorded in history, 
it's possible that there were also cervical cancer throughout history. So here are just some examples, as always. So there are ancient Egyptian texts that describe a cancer of the uterus, where they would treat it with a mixture of fresh dates and pig brains that they would insert Ugh. into the vagina. Yeah, no, not into the vagina. Yeah, Why? the pig brains. I know. And I, I Ugh, know this episode about cervical cancer. Yeah. I know this episode is about cervical cancer, but like think of way back then, they weren't able to tell the difference between uterine and cervical cancer for a long time, which is why I bring up right. like their knowledge of uterine cancer, you know, back then. Well, too. I so wonder how did they even look? Did they look into the vaginal yeah. canal? There's some, I don't know about like all the way back in Egypt. Maybe they did like a exam. They could have done the bimanual exam and feel cervical cancer. Oh, yeah. But um, there are like more medieval devices, I guess, that kind of resemble speculums, honestly. They, ha- they have like, I don't think I mentioned it at any point, but they had speculums that had like three prongs instead of two. Like, oh, honestly, like kind of. Nice. Yeah. That would be kind of nice. Prongs, I, I would love a four prong speculum, honestly. Just open it on all I know. edges. Beautiful. But yeah, so somehow they would look. Um, there's also texts from Rome in the second century that talked about cervical ulcers and tumors. And if you're having a cervical ulcer, then it's probably a tumor because that's kind of what happens. And they saw these during pelvic exams. It was specifically said, visualized during pelvic exams. Mm. And they also apparently recorded uterine ulcers, but that doesn't really make sense because you can't see the uterus, which makes people think it was also a cervical ulcer. Like, that yeah, they were like that makes sense. Of this from different positions. They would say uterine, but you can't see the uterus. All you can see is cervix. So, you know, moving forward to the 1500s and 1700s, there was a Dutch surgeon who successfully removed the uterus and started to like specifically describe tumors of the cervix specifically mm. separate than the uterus. So before this, they're like doing pelvic exams. They're seeing there's something going on with the cervix. And now doing a pelvic exam and using a speculum was seen to be very sexual. And it was only done on sex workers or to check for STDs. So because of like the sex, what they thought was the sexual nature of the pelvic exam, there was actually a big drop in like cervical cancer recordings because they just like weren't doing. Oh, they were never looking for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was actually one picture I was reading about this. That was like the depiction of, of the pelvic exam at that time. And it basically was like a woman on a raised bed. And the like male doctor doing the pelvic exam, but the way the woman's legs and arms were, it like looked like sexual activity, basically. Mm. Like that was how it was thought of and portrayed. Also, around this time, moving to like the 1800s, there became to be this huge bias towards women who had uterine and cervical cancer. Why do you think this would be, Alicia? When was this again? The 1800s. There was a bias towards them? Yep. Women who had cervical and uterine cancer, there was a bias towards them. Is it because the microscope was invented so then you could look at cervical pathology? Um, not quite. There was a bias. I don't know. Just tell me. At it. 
It's because they started to realize that this cancer was specifically in lower class women and women who are more sexually active. They noticed that sexually active women were getting cervical cancer more than like virgins or nuns. So it became this idea that if you had cervical cancer, then it's because you had a lack of morals and you were morally wrong. And you were often also like a woman of a lower class or like an impoverished woman. Uh, and you'd have cervical cancer. Oh. So, it became, like, so it wasn't really like a bias towards them in a good way. It was more of like no, a... No, in a oh, bad way. that's why I was super confused. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, like they were identifying certain groups of people as having cervical mm-hmm. cancer because they were sexually active. Exactly. And that was like, they were slut-shaming them. Yes, a thousand percent. Literally, one doctor noticed that nuns like never had uterine or cervical cancer as they would like interchangeably call it um and and married women often have like lower rates of cervical cancer as well Mm. so they were like "Mm, sus something's going on here that's to do with sex it's kind of what they were getting to also around this time period they started using surgery to treat cervical cancer on these patients actually so anesthesia became like widely used in practice or more often at least um so they would do cervical cancer surgeries, and they also started doing radical hysterectomies and vaginal hysterectomies. And then by the 19th century, hysterectomies were the recommended treatment for cervical cancer, which is like a little, a little similar to what it is today. Also around this time, as you said, scientists started using the microscope to investigate cancer, and they are finally able to distinguish between uterine and cervical cancer because they were like, wait, these are two different these cells. These cells look different, right. These are different and their cancers are different. And then they were specifically able to be like, oh, wow, most of these cancers are actually cervical. Like even the ones that are in the uterus, like those cancer cells are cervical a lot of the time. So they were like, wow, cervical cancer is actually super, super common. To the point that in the early 1900s, cervical cancer was so bad that the cure rate for it was 18%. So oh, 18% yikes. Yeah, of women who got cervical cancer were cured of it. And 75% of patients were presenting with late stage tumors. Oh, no. Yeah, so it's really bad. Doctors are like, okay, we know what this is now. It's cervical cancer and it's killing tons of women. We need to get a handle on this like now, which led to them really pushing for prevention for cervical cancer. So how did this work? In the 1920s, a German doctor by the name of Hans created the colposcope, which is basically this super powered microscope that allows you to look very closely at the cervix and you can see the cells like just so much clearer than you can with the normal eyes. And he also pioneered the use of acetic acid on the cervix to help identify mm, normal cool. versus abnormal tissue. And this is actually what is used today. So if you were ever to have an abnormal pap smear, which we'll talk about in a bit, then you might go to like a pulpo clinic and they'll use this super strong microscope to look at your cervix and try to identify any abnormal cells. And I literally have like been to a lot of pulpo clinics, especially in my guy knock month. And they're quite cool. Like you can like really see when they put that acetic acid on the cervix, you can be like, wow, yep, that right. That's cancer for sure. Right there. It basically glows white on your cervix. So very cool discovery from Hans in the 1920s. But one of the best things that has happened so far in terms of cervical cancer, 
um, is the creation of the pap smear, which I hope most people listening have heard of the pap smear. It is still in practice today, which is why we're going to talk about it. And the pap smear was created by no other than Dr. George Papanicolaou. And Dr. Papanicolaou is from Greece. And just a little backstory on him. He's from Greece. He went to the University of Athens. After he graduated, he actually worked in the army as a surgeon for a couple of years. And then he moved back to his hometown in Greece and spent two years caring for leprosy patients in his hometown. Oh. Kind of cool. Because that was like a taboo thing. Then he moved to Germany and got his PhD. And then he moved back to Greece to assist another war before marrying his wife and moving to the U.S., which was ballsy because he knew zero English and he only had $250 oh. in his pocket. So he was Classic here. immigrant story. Good job, Classic. doctor. He came here with his MD, PhD and ended up just working like a lot of odd jobs at first in New York, like odd, non-medical jobs, just like janitor, things like that for a long time before he got a job at Cornell in the pathology department. And this is where mm. all the magic happened. So he started doing cytopathology research on the reproductive cycle by studying guinea pigs. And <laughs> the, nice. I know. Cute. With those guinea pigs, he would take swabs of the guinea pig vaginas and he would use what? those swabs. <laughs> yeah. He would use those swabs to track their reproductive cycle. And then he was like, wait, that. this is, he's like, whatever is in this like vaginal swab is working really well. So then he started testing it on human volunteers and taking vaginal swabs from human volunteers and even his wife who volunteered apparently a lot to oh. be a subject for these swabs. Yeah. Good for her. Through this like vaginal swab research he was doing, he noticed that you were able just like looking through the microscope, nothing special, just literally looking through the microscope, you were able to identify normal versus cancer cervical cells from those vaginal secretion swabs. And this happened in 1928. Mm. So this is him being like, oh my God, I swabbed the vagina in the cervix and I can see cancer. This is crazy. So he wrote a paper on it and went to present his research and it was actually rejected the first time Nar. because he was still learning English. So there was like a lot of spelling ah! errors and grammar errors. So they rejected his paper. That's so, so mean. But he didn't give up. So 10 years after he made this discovery, he became a professor at Cornell and then partnered with another pathologist and conducted a like widespread study of 3,000 women where they did vaginal swabs on all of these women. Of these swabs, they detected 179 cases of cancer and 120 of them were cervical cancer. So from the study, they published a paper in 1942 called Diagnosis of Uterine Cancer by Vaginal Smear, which detailed how a simple vaginal swab looked under a microscope could identify cancer, which is today called the pap smear. Wow. Later in his life, Dr. Pap moved to Miami, actually, to start a cancer institute dedicated to researching cervical cancer. They died shortly before it opened. But in Aww. his honor, they still opened the institute. So the Miami Cancer Institute was renamed the Pap Nicolau Cancer Research Institute in Miami. Aw, cute. I know. So Crazy. I just need to emphasize how important this discovery is. The creation of the pap smear took a cancer that was killing women for centuries, like left and right, and decreased the mortality of this cancer by 70%. Wow. Like, huge. Saved so many women. And this became like the new screening method. 
And let me tell you, it is a shock. It is a shock that this man did not win a Nobel Prize. Like, did not win a Nobel Prize. He actually was nominated twice. I don't know who beat him both those times, but he deserved it. Because, like, the pap smear is the most successful screening test for cancer that we have, like, to this day. That's still the most successful screening. It's literally so cool. And it's just, like, the most simple office procedure. Like, I was in clinic today, and we probably did, like, four or five pap smears. They're so quick. They're so easy. And they're so important and so successful. So just wanted to tell his whole story of how he discovered the pap smear because it's awesome. But what's funny is that, like, he discovered it and didn't mean that people were like, all right, we're doing pap smears all the time now. Like, they had to convince people to start getting these things because no one knew what a pap smear was compared to today. Like, most women know what a pap smear is. 1940s, they were like, what is this thing? Why are you trying to scrape my vagina? This is weird. So they needed to somehow convince women to go and get these screenings. So a lot of countries actually quickly picked up the pap smear and implemented it into their public health. So England, Finland, Sweden, and Japan all like very quickly made it a public health effort and became part of just natural screening. And the U.S. um, started to create cervical cancer clinics where their like intention was to do pap smears all the time. Those didn't really work out and they kind of just like shifted more to private gynecology offices and OBGYNs or in family practice, um, which is basically how pap smears are run today. Usually you get it from your mm-hmm. family doctor or your OBGYN. But what's funny is that in the 1960s, Britain had a campaign called the Women's National Cancer Control Campaign, and they created short films to convince women to get pap smears. And they basically say that it was your duty to get screened because you had a duty to your family to not get cancer. I'm like, okay, fair. In the U.S., they also made films, and the films were about how pap smears could bring you personal freedom and happiness. Oh, explain to me how, but okay. I don't know. If it worked, it worked. Yeah. Something else that happened around this time, like 1960s, is the creation of the oral birth control pill. And along with this, you know, throughout the 1900s was the sexual revolution for women. So screening was really emphasized because, you know, we know that cervical cancer is somehow related to sexual activity. They weren't really sure why at this point, but they knew it was. So it was like really being pushed um, to get screened. But something interesting I saw in one paper was that it kind of emphasized the psychological toll that screening can bring a lot of people and how it made mm. it made women who were involved in sexual activity and the push to get them screened kind of had like a negative connotation and just like the toll of knowing, okay, I need to get screened for this scary thing. And like, it just brought up that there should be more research done on how screening affects people psychologically, which I thought was really interesting because I've never really heard about that before. Yeah. But I'm talking for all this time, we've barely talked about HPV. So I didn't forget about it. I promise. I have a whole little thing on HPV. I forgot about it. Dang. Okay. I know. We're back to it. HPV is also crazy. So as mentioned before, doctors noticed that women who had high rates of cervical cancer were often women who were more sexually active. And they thought, well, okay, maybe this cancer is related to something that can be transmitted. Like, why is there this correlation? So scientists at this time, actually, we're talking like 1900s already knew that viruses could lead to cancer or abnormal growths. It was known throughout history that warts were sexually transmitted. There's a lot of like 
Greco-Roman texts that talk about warts and their like relation to sexual activity. And then also there's a scientist in the 1900s who discovered that rabbit papillomavirus caused it caused cancer in rabbits. RPV? <laughs> yes, literally. Literally. And then there was also a scientist who was studying um, microbes in chickens and found that they cause cancer as well. But that doctor like was sus to say that like it was a virus. He was like, no, viruses can't cause cancer. He, he didn't like want to say that. But it turned out they figured out like way down the line, like after he had died, that the microbes he was studying were indeed viruses that were causing cancer in chickens. Mm. Kind of interesting. So doctors were like, okay, interesting. There's viruses and animals causing cancers and they start looking into more and then they discover Epstein-Barr virus which EBV EBV that's actually called EBV (laughs) yeah EBV causes a lot of different things but it can also cause a rare blood cancer in African children oh yeah BLL or something Burkitt's lymphoma yeah something like that so it can cause like these like weird blood cancers um, they're rare, but they're like, okay, there's like a virus causing cancer in humans. Interesting. So for a while, scientists were like, maybe HSV is what ca- is causing cervical cancer, which HSV is is herpes. And they specifically thought HSV too, which is technically genital herpes, was causing cervical cancer. But that's not true. That's not true at all. They kept looking into it. And then there was this doctor in Germany that discovered HPV was indeed the cervical cancer virus. And he actually did hmm. go on to win a Nobel Prize for his discovery. So there is Yo, a Nobel Prize dedicated to HPV, like in its correlation to cancer. So that's good. But I still want the pap smear to get a I know. Nobel I'm Prize. And I'm, I'm going to die on this. I want the pap smear to get a Nobel Prize. I'm just imagining that dad from my big fat Greek wedding. And I'm like, oh, my God, he deserves a Nobel Prize. Either way, the discovery of HPV and cervical cancer has a Nobel Prize. And for good reason, because HPV is extremely prevalent, as I mentioned. Also, side note, part of studying HPV actually involved using the HeLa cells, which were wrongfully Uh, taken from Henrietta Lacks, which we talked about in episode seven. So give it a listen if you haven't listened to that one yet. Yeah. All right, so... HPV is super, super prevalent. In the United States, there are around 79 million people with HPV and 14 million new infections every year. And Mm. half of those infections are coming from young adults, 15 to 24. Mm. HPV, yep. HPV also causes around 33,600 cancers every year and 20,200 of those cancers are cervical cancer. So HPV also causes like some throat cancers and stuff um, that we won't get into here, but just know that that also is a thing. But most of them are cervical cancer. So the science community is like, okay, we know there's HPV and it's causing cervical cancer. We need to find a way to prevent this because like HPV is a virus. And what can you do with viruses, Alicia? Vaccinate against them. You can vaccinate against viruses. Yes. Love that. Love that for HPV. So that is exactly what they did. So in the early 2000s, the HPV vaccine was developed. And in 2005, a study came out of over 12,000 people who had used Gardasil, 
at the time only covered HPV 16 and 18, and they found that it was highly effective. Now, though, the vaccine covers actually nine different strains of HPV, and it covers like all the high-risk strains. But back in 2005, it only covered two strains. And then a year later, the FDA approved vaccine for girls 9 to 26, which now it's actually approved through 45 in men and women. So everyone should get the vaccine. The ideal age to get vaccinated is actually 11 to 12, aka before your like sexual debut. So the goal is that people are vaccinated before they start having sex, because if you're vaccinated, then you can prevent getting HPV and that leading to cancer. And I just learned this the other day because when you're like 11 or 12, you're like going through puberty. You also, your immune system is like revamping too. And so it also Mm. helps with your immunity and then can help your body fight off HPV. That's another reason. Yeah. That makes sense too. Because before age 15, you only need two shots. And then after that, you get three. That's exactly why. Also important to note that if you have HPV, then you get vaccinated. You already have HPV and that vaccine's not going to help as much. Like if you already have cancer from HPV, the vaccine's not going to prevent that cancer. But if you get that cancer treated and then you get the vaccine, it's going to help prevent reinfection of HPV. Because like Mm. I said, you can have HPV, you can fight it off or you can get cancer and then you can have treatments done for that cancer, but you can still get reinfected. It's still a virus. Like you can continuously get reinfected which is why vaccination is super important. So I would see cervical cancer patients in clinic and they would still have them get vaccinated if they hadn't been vaccinated yet Mm. to prevent any reinfection that would cause like a second cancer down the line. That makes sense. So that's super important. So by 2019, 100 countries had incorporated HPV vaccination into their regular vaccine schedules. So it's part of the regular vaccine schedule now for a lot of countries. There's also a landmark article in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is kind of like the holy grail of medical journals. And it was a Swedish study that looked at over 1.5 million women and girls over a 10-year period. And they found that if you got the HPV vaccine before the age of 17, you had an 88% lower risk of getting cervical cancer than if you had never been vaccinated, which is insane. So the HPV vaccine is crazy effective in preventing cervical cancer. Also, I should add that you can also get HPV co-testing these days. So there are many different prevention methods we've we've been talking about. One is you can get the HPV vaccine and you 100% should. If you have not gotten it yet and it's not too late, go and get one. Well, all three of them. And you get the pap smear and then you can also get HPV co-testing. And that can tell your doctor if you have high risk HPV and that can be a warning flag for cancer even before the pap smear picks up any signs of cancer. So the HPV co-testing is super great because like I said, it can tell us that you are at risk for cancer even before your pap smear is able to do that. So in my conversations with gyne-onc doctors, they've talked about how they think HPV testing is going to become like the primary prevention method one day and probably push out the pap smear. But right now the pap smear is so well known and it's covered like by insurance and things like that, that pap smear will probably stay around for a while. But HPV co-testing is part of the screening as you get older these days. But I'm talking about all these amazing prevention methods you can do to prevent cervical cancer, but like the rates are still really high. Like I already told you that it's the third most common cancer in women in the world. So like, why is it still so high? Why are rates so high, Alicia? Because we're screening more. Oh, maybe. Yes. But no. Why are people still getting cervical cancer? Because technically, if you're screening, I should mention this because I don't really talk about the different types of cervical cancer, because I think you should talk to a licensed doctor about it since we're not that yet. But pap smears can 
pick up on pre-cancer and we can treat the pre-cancer before it becomes cervical cancer. But why is actual cervical cancer rates still really high? Because we don't vaccinate everyone. Yeah, that's good for sure. Why why won't people get vaccinated? What's the because reason? Because they're scared because there's taboo. Yeah, that one's good. We're going to talk about that later. Because of access. Yes, access. So you need medical access to get screening and preventative methods, which is really, really hard to do if you are of low socioeconomic status and you don't have access to insurance or access to medical care, or if you live in a developing country. So I'm going to talk a little bit about global health before we wrap up. So cancer, like I said, extremely common. But what's crazy is that 80% of all cervical cancer cases today actually occur in the developing world. And it is the leading cause of cancer death in those countries. So in developing countries, only 5% of women get cervical cancer screening compared to closer to like 50% of women in developed countries. In developing countries, pap smear screening is, is often only available through private providers or family planning clinics. And those are often in areas that are not super high risk. Also, a lot of these locations have less access to cytology, aka lab services to process the mm, screening. So like mm-hmm. they could get a pap smear, but if they don't have the right labs to process right, to those pap it. smears, then that's right. not really helping at all. No. Um, so getting the correct screening to women takes a lot of awareness and advocacy healthcare providers in these regions. So there's a lot of different things that are happening like in the developing world. Think of that done a lot of vaccine efforts, a lot of public health efforts. Something really interesting is that Nigeria has a really high cervical cancer rate and they're working to increase awareness through like national cancer programming um, and with the goal of implementing HPV vaccination like in their own healthcare. So a lot of developing countries are trying to like get the vaccine out there, especially because like the vaccine doesn't require all its lab services. You can just go and get the vaccine and that's already so preventative compared to pap smears, take a lot more follow-up and need all these other resources that they might not have in those countries. And then speaking of nationwide vaccination, Australia was actually the first country in 2007 to fully fund primary HPV vaccination and catch-up vaccines. And they added HPV screening, so the co-testing on top of that in 2017, which made Australia the first country to be on track to eliminate cervical cancer. However, it's still important to note that countries even like Australia have large gaps in screening and vaccination between indigenous and non-indigenous populations, which is similar to disparities in the United States today, where gaps in care are often, yeah, where gaps in care are most common in immigrants, black women, Hispanic women, and even elderly women, apparently. Um, And it's specifically these women within lower socioeconomic classes. So despite all of these amazing prevention methods that deserve all the Nobel Prizes to prevent this cancer that can get quite terrible, honestly, there's still a lot of work to be done today. So with that, I thought we would ponder about cervical cancer and have a little chat. That sounds great. Any thoughts about this? I feel like the thing that stuck with me was the pap smear and Dr. Papa Nicolau's like story. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, buddy. Again, he is in my mind, my Greek grandfather that I don't have because I'm not Greek, but I'm obsessed <laughs> with that concept. Um, yeah. 
But it really is crazy how groundbreaking his finding was. And yeah, I'm glad the pap smear is like named after him to at least give him that credit. And you know, what's funny is in Spanish, pap smear is literally just Papa Nicolau. Like it's just his name. Really? Yeah. Which is, that's my favorite Spanish word. But now I'm like, okay, I got to change that because that's not even a Spanish word. That's just a Greek man's last name. Yeah, that's funny. And then I think it's interesting, the shifts that we're making and it really just the numbers that you kind of touched on really show the impact that the vaccine and pap smears have had on cervical cancer mortality among people with Mm -hmm. uteruses. Though I do wonder if that's like a whole nother discussion is, you know, like the trans community and pap smears are very like triggering that's like a whole nother bag of worms, but it is really reassuring to see how far we've come in this and that some nations like Australia are moving towards complete eradication of cervical cancer. But then, yeah, when I think about like globally where we're at, we're still really far behind in eradicating cervical cancer. And it's just unfortunate because I don't know if we'll ever reach a point where we'll have the infrastructure with the current system that we have to eradicate mm-hmm. it completely globally because we would literally have to get vaccines to like everyone or close to everyone and have that herd immunity. Yeah. But I mean, we got rid of smallpox. Like maybe we can yeah. get rid of this somehow. Gardasil hasn't been around for that yeah, long. For sure. So maybe we need to give it more time. Oh, it really hasn't. Like I remember getting the HPV vaccine myself. It was like in new. High school, I think. Yeah. And it was, yes, it was so new. I was like, what is this? My dad was like, trust me, you just need it. And I was like, oh, whatever. And then I remember the third shot came out when I was in college. My dad, my dad's pediatrician. So he's like, okay, now you need to go get the third shot. Like it was like the updated one or something. And I was like, okay, like I'll do whatever. Yeah. It's very, I really think cervical cancer is super interesting. I don't know if I want to be a gynoc doctor, but I do think cervical cancer is crazy of how preventable it is, which is why I really want to do right. an episode on it. Like seen women who have had horrible, huge masses in their cervix. They can't even sit because of the pain. It's incredible how preventable it is because not many cancers like have such measures as this to like truly prevent it. And totally. then on the same topic of prevention, a hot topic in pediatrics is parents like not wanting their children vaccinated against HPV because they think it has some type of correlation with sexual activity like in their children. Because like I said, the ideal age is 11 or 12 year old. And when you're telling parents, well, I want HPV, like them to get the HPV vaccine, parents know that that means that's a sexually transmitted virus. And they're like, no, 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 my child's only 11. They don't need that. So there's a lot of like bad connotations around the HPV vaccine. Um, something pediatricians and family medicine doctors really have to work against. So I just want to talk about how can we like change this conversation around sexual activity and the importance of like prevention and what can we do or how can we talk about it at least? Yeah, I think so. It's interesting because this literally came up with the HPV vaccine with a patient that I saw in family medicine clinic on Monday and the mom of the patient did not want the patient to get the vaccine. He's a, like a young teenage male and Mm -hmm. my doctor, we brought it up and I could just feel that palpable, you know, tension where the patient's like, like I don't want to, it's like, yeah, Yeah. you're just like, oh man, now we have to have this talk. And like, 
now I'm feeling discordant with the patient. Like I know that the patient literally said that they don't want it, but I have to talk about it because it's like part of my job. But then also it's every touch point that you talk to the patients about is like one more time to like try to convince them to change their mind. And especially Mm -hmm. in family medicine or OB-GYN or any kind of specialty in which you have the luxury of longitudinal care, it's building that trust Mm -hmm. over time and bringing up the vaccine every time and counseling on it every time that could ultimately like lead to a change. And so provider basically sat down and was like, what reservations do you have about it? And the mom was like, no, I just don't want him to get it now. And then the doctor kind of went in. That's how I heard or like learned that at this age, like a younger age, it's better to get the vaccine because when you're going through puberty, your immune system is also like revamping and improving and you'll have better immune responses if you get it now. And then you you can get the two vaccines versus later you have to get three. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just a matter of, yeah, multiple touch points and really emphasizing that it's all preventative. It's not saying that there's any implication that your child is currently sexually active or will be soon, but just that we recommend it for everybody. We recommend it for people who are even up to 45 now. It's something that's like really Mm -hmm. changed. I think the other thing that is interesting is like, we were counseling this patient who was a male and had male mm-hmm. anatomy. And so I wonder too, if that played into his mom's hesitation versus if it was a female with the cervix, yeah. maybe she would have been more amenable because there's the most direct correlation between HPV and cervical cancer, but it's yeah. still good for everyone to yeah. get the vaccine. Yeah, for sure. And like HPV can cause penile cancer as well so there's something to say there and forms of like anal cancer um and just like a huge thing is just like saying like not you don't want to pass it to women so I think a big thing is saying like okay like yes your son might not get cancer from HPV but like you don't want him to ever give someone in a future relationship HPV and then they get cancer so it's a weird conversation because like they might not get cancer the risk is lower for sure but in part of like contributing to herd immunity like they should get it yeah everyone should get it yeah but yeah it's very interesting because it's not it's very implicated like oh this means you're gonna have sex and it's like no this is an anti-cancer vaccine it's like really I think the point that's important I kind of mentioned this but like you can get HPV and then 10 years later find out you have cancer so it's really important that because you're going to get infected probably in your teens or 20s which is when people's sexual activity is the highest according to studies. So you're not going to get cancer then. You're going to get cancer later in your life. The HPV can actually stay dormant for that whole time. So you can have like testing that all come back negative because it's dormant. And then it can actually come about later and the viral load can get higher depending on just like what other medical conditions you have and what's going on and what your own like immunity status. The virus can get stronger, have a higher viral load, and then all of a sudden it will become positive. And now you're like at risk for cancer and you could have prevented that 10 years earlier if you had a vaccine. Yeah. So it's an interesting conversation. Um, yeah. So if you would like to learn more about all these interesting topics on public health and women's health today, then go ahead and subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review. Apple Podcasts and Spotify are great places for that. Yep. And you can follow us on social media. And check out our website for more information, show notes, sources, merch, 
and more, which is from skirtstoscrubs.com. And lastly, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yeah.